Hello everybody, good evening and welcome here to Lima's first online event. Um, we're here together tonight with Diana McCarthy and Martina Dam. Uh, it is an uh, event that takes place in the context of our Cultural Meta series. Um, and as you all know, this uh, exhibition was, uh, uh, you could see it in our space until a couple of weeks ago, but now we fully operate online. Uh, if you haven't seen Martin's, uh, Martine Dam's exhibition yet, I would highly recommend that you see it online now. If you go to Lima's website, you see the links of the videos that we have been showing inside the space. Uh, the work that Martine is showing is her latest creation that she made uh, collaboratively with Emmanuel Guest and Zombectro, and it's uh, the online curator Maja Eidelstein Gomez. So go have a, have a look. Um, and here tonight, as I said, there's Diana McCarthy with us. She will first um, start off by a lecture on um, the, the history of uh, techno-feminist practices very shortly and condensedly. It will take around like 15 minutes. And after, um, Diana and Martine will be back to discuss the talk and to discuss the work of Martine within this context of techno-feminist practices. Um, so I think I want to give the screen to you now, Diana, and um, kick off with your talk. And we will be back after for more talks and discussions. So audience, enjoy, and see you after. So thank you. I want to thank all of you for attending this. Uh, thank you, Sanika Husman, for this invitation to Lima, and to Jose Miguel Vizcaya for the technical support, and basically the whole team at Lima for making this talk the techno-feminist alphabet from cyber-feminism to xeno-feminism possible. And I want to say this talk draws heavily uh, from two very long and ongoing projects. Uh, that one is Luta Kakaba Inda, The Struggle Is Not Over Yet, with Philippa Cesar and the rest of the Sinekins, and Burning Red with Francisca Kleiner. It's also informed by my own research as a Bach Fellow in 2019 and 2020, in Utrecht at the Basis für Aktuelle Kunst. Okay, so as a straight cis female, when I fall into we, as I often do, it is to describe my collective work and ideas. Um, I'm delighted to add my fellow fellows from Bach to that motley crew, so time travelers and troublemakers, and some time traveling troublemakers. So thank you for joining me on this particular journey of time traveling troublemakers the most case, feminist militants. Okay, in any case, I rarely travel alone, and I'm always in dialogue with the ancestors, the friends, the comrades, and the cool cats. So this talk is actually me carrying and bearing the words and wisdom of many. And I want to just add a few names to that, and that's Sonia, Anjali, Seda, Hito, Grada, Ali, <laughs> Ala, Wendy, Vali, Kathy. There are many more the mini-mafia, and the magic communists. Okay, a little bit of hoodoo is never wrong. And uh, what would Legba say? Ask the internet. Let's start at the end. The end of a journey from Africa to the Caribbean. The end of a journey known as the Middle Passage. From the Gold Coast to the island of what is now Haiti. A journey of once free people, captured, shipped around the world, to be sold and to be told. And they fought and they won. They fought for their freedom and they won their freedom. 
Those once free people met other enslaved Africans, born free or born into oppression, free people of color, all on that tropical island. Those survivors of the Middle Passage found their kin among the, those people on that island. And they used their heads and their minds and their bodies and their arms and they took up arms and they fought for their freedom and they won. Among them, Lieutenant Sanité Belair. Okay, those survivors of the Middle Passage, those born into slavery, those women and those men, those people in between, they fought for their freedom and they won. They fought for their freedom and they won. They fought for their freedom and they showed it could be done. And they say, they practiced voodoo. They say they poisoned the wells of those that stole them, those that sold them, those that told them. They say Madame Sanité refused to have her eyes covered when she was executed by the French and word travel. Okay, so that's a little tiny bit of a reading and it goes on. I'm going to stop there with that part and maybe dive in and out of it. I will ask you to uh, get on the internet now and look up Sanate Belair and Haiti. Just ask whichever search engine you use and you will find that this lieutenant did exist. And now she graces this currency, this note. Uh, yes. And you can also see that, um, yeah, that she's, she's remembered very fondly. Now, how I got to Sanate Belair in the context of looking at techno-feminism and techno-feminist like, histories and trajectories and understandings of history is actually through the Bolsheviki, the militant women in the Tsarist Russian Empire that were active at the turn of the century and you know prior to the Russian Revolution that led to the foundation of the Soviet Union. So I was looking at what those women were looking at, what inspired them. Because they were educated, they ran printing presses, they participated in all forms of the organization of the Bolshevik movement, I wanted to see how they got to that point. And one of the things I found out is that they were themselves influenced and inspired by Harriet Tubman. Now, Harriet Tubman, again, ask the internet, you can find out a lot of facts. She's also just about to grace the $20 bill in the US, and you can see some artists have already created stamps that you can use physically on $20 bills now to already put her there. Due to political concerns of the moment, that's been delayed. But in any case, uh, Harriet Tubman will also soon be on a dollar bill. Her life had been, um, uh, her, a biography was published about her just before, uh, just uh, now I'm forgetting the year, 18... Just just before the uh, turn of the century, so just before 1900. So, of course, the Bolshevik women also had access to that. And again, here's something interesting is that um, I was looking at the early Bolshevik movement, so around 1907, so it, as the Bolshevik party was getting formed. And, of course, they were very educated. One doesn't always understand this that the Russian, the Tsarist Russian Empire, and expanding especially to Georgia, where there was a high level of literacy, women read, there was a lot of access to international information, not just from Europe, but also from the Middle East through Iran. And there were also the early shipping and train lines. So a lot of information was traveling. So who heard which word and what did they do knowing what they knew? 
um, it's kind of interesting because, of course, not only Harriet Tubman was a reference, but they would have heard of uh, Sanité Belaire. And one of those women, if we go back in history, now we're into, let's say, 1905, 1907. One of those women, one of those Bolshevik militants was Elena Stasova, Lenin's lady laptop. Okay, don't forget, this is yeah, about techno-feminism. So word traveled, and this is something interesting. What is uh, important about Elena Stasova, yeah, she heard, right? She would have heard all of this. She was gathering things. Now, she's super interesting, not very well known. She was an influence on Alexandra Kalantai, who, um, let's say, she's, Stasova schooled Kalantai on how to become an organizer, how to go from being a party girl to a party girl. And that meant organization, not just being in a movement for its romantic uh, gestures, but actually engaged with all of the boring administrative things. Now, Stasova, the absolute, Lenin's lady laptop, was the keeper of codes, passwords, safe houses, the keys, uh, the keys to everything, the Bolshevik budgets, the operations, the encryptions. She ran the secret operations. She ran the Bolshevik center, which you can also see uh, mimicked in the uh, wonderful American TV series, The Americans. So this keeper of secrets, she would have heard. Now what they say about her, she remembered everything in great detail. She never wrote anything down. Okay, so word travels. I'm going to fast forward because of time constraints and because this is a kind of experiment. Um, let's say she was she and Lenin were tight. They get interested in peasants after the Gurian Republic, which was the peasant-led uh, socialist state already existing between 1903 and 1906 in the farthest reaches of of um, Eastern, the Eastern Empire of the, of the Tsarist Russian Empire. So now Bogdanov, Alexander Bogdanov, many people know this book, which is called Red Star. Please ask the internet. Just do that now with me. Internet, Red Star, Alexander Bogdanov. Many people know this book through uh, Mackenzie Wark's Molecular Red. In any case, uh, Bogdanov, also a militant, wrote this um yeah, this fantastic worlding of communism. And I believe he's referring to Georgia, but one of the things he deals with is a sort of techno-utopic techno future or how things could be organized. Um, and it's, it's got a really amazing organizational science to it. It's, I highly suggest you read that. You've got lots of spare time. It's not a wrong time to imagine what the world could be in a better situation. And Red Star is certainly something like that. So that's 1908, about 100 years ago, century and a bit, a century and some change. And it's about a century after the Haitian Revolution. So now let's go word travels, right? By bodies, by songs, by beats, by word of mouth, by letters, by papers, by books. So these stories travel. What becomes history in the moment are just stories, maybe rumors, maybe whispers, yeah. So, for example, the Haitian Revolution led to the first refugee crisis in the U.S. You had the white population fleeing to the American South, so from Port-au-Prince to New Orleans. That's why I say the drummers in Congo Square in New Orleans were sending out a different message. Different people heard different things. 
So I say this table, that table, who heard which word and what did they do, knowing what they knew, hearing what they heard. So that's this moment when you have, let's say, a dinner table, a white population sitting with their, I don't know, cousin, neighbors, cousin, etc., talking about the Haitian Revolution and someone saying, oh, my God, they, even the women were taking up arms. Now imagine enslaved Africans working in that household, hearing that story. That story means something very different to both of those populations, hearing those same stories in that same moment. And of course, this was tapped out over the telegraph. This was printed in articles and newspapers. This was um, shared via private letters. So, and of course, different discussions. So people were talking about this. Now, this does lead up to certain things like, um, yeah, it's, we will get to cybernetics and Haraway. Just give me a moment. And I'm not going to go through. Oh, I'm going to have to speed up quite a bit. But uh, if you look at something like the um, Latin, American, uh, Latin American politics of the 70s, you have a lot of communist and socialist movements. Now, they would have also been informed by the Soviet Union and different printed publications coming out of that. That history, those models were being broadly exported into the world. So to Latin America, to Africa, so and different people that were thinking in those places. For example, Amilcar Cabral as an agronomist working for the Portuguese state, traveling around, but at the same time operating a secret network to uh, organize liberation movements, okay? Or for example, um, the Latin American cybernetics, cyberneticians, who were also dealing with how could technology be used to, uh, yeah, structure and organize a socialist state. So a technology that wasn't in the service of capitalism, but rather in service of the people. And of course, a cyber sin is very important. I think you need to ask the internet what that is. Just take a moment, cyber sin. This is a kind of pet project of Salvador Allende. It's often credited mainly to an English guy, but the, the crew of people around that were actually socialists. They were not, um, how can I say, they were working for a better world. And who among them uh, that is possibly a forgotten figure, uh, Hortensia Bussi. Now she's, she's not mentioned in relation to Cybersyn. Interestingly enough, she was uh, married to Salvador Allende, and she happened to work in Chile's Institute for Statistics. She also was a former uh, teacher of history and geography. Cybersyn really works with geography and restoring historical and uh, social injustices, and it also understands how to organize a state for the betterment of the people. Now, me, I have not gone into this far enough just yet, but my guess is that uh, Fernando Flores could illuminate the role that Hortensia Bussi must have played in envisioning something like Cybersyn. I also have to say, uh, somebody like Norbert Wiener did a lot of his uh, uh, initial and um, foundational work on cybernetics while he was in Mexico City, and he was then in dialogue with other cybernetics-oriented people, which in this emergent field, that could have been asking other questions. Now, um, many people who know the work of Bogdanov also are going to attribute um, 
there is a, let's say, Wiener has certainly been informed and borrows a great deal of concepts from other works of Bogdanov. I think that's enough. You can, you'll have to check that out for yourself or wait for further text from me. So, uh, or my, my comrade, my comrades in arms. Okay. So, and then I think it's important if you look at Milkar Cabral and how he's working and how these, both of these models, Amilcar Cabral's forms of organization, the liberated Guinea-Bissau, how these are structurally feminist, okay? So it's not just about women doing things. These are engagements that are structurally modeled along feminism. And I really strongly suggest that you read, again, Ask the Internet, Philippa Cesar's text, uh, Meteorizations, Reading Amilcar Cabral's Agronomy of Liberation, and this is published in Third Text. Okay, I also really strongly suggest that you um, buy the book by Sonia Borges, and this is Militant Education, Liberation, Struggle, Consciousness, the PAIGC Education in Guinea-Bissau between 1963 and 1978. So this is something uh, Sonia uh, has written an incredible study into this, uh, the school system set up by the the party that Amilcar Cabral founded with his allies and his comrades. So these liberation struggles also feed into different civil rights movements, labor movements, and of course get played out in the media, but they also influence the media. So something like cybernetics is also part of, or at least the socialist cybernetics of Latin America are part of this general movement. So technologies that are forming are being informed by the politics of the moment and the technological um, possibilities. I think it's something very interesting to look at that, for example, the actual IBM mainframe computer that was being used to run CyberSyn never ran perfectly. It never had the capacity, there was not the technological capacity to make the model work. So all of that vision didn't, wasn't be able to be realized in the technologies of the time. What's interesting is after the assassination of, of uh, Allende, that mainframe IBM computer was then used to actually implement this sort of first experiment in neoliberalism in the Pinochet regime. So it's a sort of interesting understanding of how a technology can be utilized for this or for that for very different ideological purposes. And it's interesting then to see how technology holds ideologies, how technologies are informed by ideological movements and then go on to inform an ideological moment. Going to fast forward because the, um, yeah, word travels, people do and people do do, right? So Donna Haraway published the Cyborg, a sort of cyborg Manifesto in 1985 in the Socialist Review. Again, you, if you haven't read it, please do. <laughs> Just in time for the great injury to communism. Now, it's important to note that she is very much informed by feminist critiques of science, feminist critiques of labor, and liberation struggles. So all of those, and that cybernetics, right? All of those things that have led up to the, this techno-feminism have been building up. So, yeah, in 1991, just after the great injury to communism, VNS Matrix uh, comes up with the Cyber Feminist Manifesto for the 21st Century. I'm going to read that for you. Again, you can ask the internet. There are wonderful visuals to accompany that. So, we are the modern cunt. Positive anti-reason. Unbounded, unleashed, unforgiving. 
We see art with our cunt. We make art with our cunt. We believe in jouissance, madness, holiness, and poetry. We are the virus of the new world disorder, returning the symbolic form from within, saboteurs of big daddy mainframe. The clitoris is a direct line to the matrix, the VNS matrix, terminators of the moral codes, mercenaries of slime, go down on the altar of abjection. Probing the visceral temple, we speak in tongues, infiltrating, disrupting, disseminating, corrupting the discourse. We are the future cunt by Venus Matrix. Okay, now I just want to um, point out that, again, this is written in 1991. The, the internet is a different monster, right? It's Big Daddy Mainframe has only started to show his tentacles, right? So all of these shapeshifters are both real and fictional, material and immaterial, and their actions mean one thing in their own time, but carry on. So they are becoming media. They are not just uh, represented in media, they're also informing how media represents. They get medialized, idealized, and they fuel the imaginations and imaginaries of those who come after, and in different ways, okay? Language, body, print, telegrams, railroads, weapons. This is all kind of history and how history gets inscribed and transmitted, right? How it carries on. So, yeah, I mean, Haraway in 84, let's say, writing, it's a home computer, it's barely a thing. Internet, barely a thing. You get to 1991, VNS Matrix is busy, while the web is almost becoming a thing. Like social media, not there. Not even a thing. Wireless internet, forget it. Cell phones, <laughs> smart things, <laughs> yeah. So... I think it's also interesting then to look at how um, feminist critiques of science work, ask the internet, and feminist software development. I really think that something like the construction of knowledge, which gets can be implemented in a feminist model of technological development, or for example, software development, the social is on the early side. It means sort of imagining a technology or a software, an app, imagining who's going to be using it, imagining what purpose it could have, then reaching out, asking those people who relies on a lot more social communication or people getting involved early on. So it's not this thing of Facebook or Twitter, which is always at the end, right? The, the end product, it's the pre-product. It's the, pre, uh, the research and development before the implementation. And that's a, that's a feminist model, right? So, yeah, huh. I think there are a couple of practices that I would like to point out. I think everybody knows, like the Old Boys Network and the Cyber Feminist International from Documenta, or for example, the Xeno Feminist, um, oh, the Xeno Feminists, which I think, which wrote the uh, Politics of Alienation Manifesto. Those are, again, things that you can simply find on the internet. I suggest you do that. Also, kind of mind, uh, if you want to tickle your mind a bit with your technology in the coming weeks and days of the lockdown, that's a good way to do it. Um, one of the things that I'm interested in is how militant movements have carried on these histories, how people continue to fight for their freedom. And based on these other stories, like what do they do knowing what they know? knowing that people have fought for their freedom and have won their freedom. And so groups, uh, the Zapatistas in Mexico, the PKK, other left-wing movements around the world, all rely heavily on media. So one thing is it's for their representation, their communication, and also how they organize, right? 
So, and gender liberation is a thing. So there are reading lists and education programs. And so, for example, uh, Red Star is often on those. I've heard from a good old militant. He knew the book very well. Very elderly man from Guinea-Bissau, one of the Sinekins. So, yeah, it takes, like, I'm going to go with the co-founder of the PKK, Sakina Chances, who was assassinated in Paris in 2013, um, along with her comrades Fidan Doyan and Leila. Oh, say, say, sorry, my apologies. Bentuche Urinurum. So, Bentuche Birmurum. Yeah, so that assassination. Now they say Chances was inspired by Sasuka. They say she had a similar way of working, and they say some secrets died with her. So that's something like, not everybody is informed about Stasova, but certainly the Pikaka was, and is. <clears throat> they knew the power of having a central organization and also the power of keeping secrets and not writing things down. Mm. What could be interesting about that particular set of assassinations was not only was um, the leader of that cell assassinated, but so were her two assistants slash trainees. So it was really cutting off a certain very important organizational branch of the PKK. <clears throat> I also have to mention um, a Berlin-based initiative, and that's Coupe de Jour, Soupe de Jour, and Co. That many, many allies. And it seems to be an intersectional, multi-ethnic, queer feminist collectivity. They operate anonymously using social media to out the white male heteronormative art practices and politics in Berlin and German art world in different scenes. They use stickers, posters, letters, press releases, and social media for their campaigns. It's caused more than a few controversies and public debates, and it's very interesting to see what happens. They're also operating <coughs> excuse me, along this line of whispers and rumors. It's like how word travels, right? I really also have to mention another techno-feminist practice, and that is Sci-Hub. This is the first pirate website in the world to provide mass and public access to tens of millions of research papers that otherwise one has to um, pay quite expensive fees to access. This illegal database of subscription-based scientific and academic journals was programmed by Alexandra Elbakian. So and primarily in the first case for her to access documents, but also to make them available to many others. <coughs> yeah. They say she did it all on her own. Oh, I've heard about this project through the great feminist philosopher, Ala Mitrofanova, who again, I think if you have a chance to read her texts, they're not very often translated into English, but she's incredibly influential for contemporary, um, I think, yeah, feminists, cyber feminists, techno feminists, artists, academics, and activists across the former, yeah, like Soviet inspired zone. In any place in a Russian speaking <coughs> environment, she's extremely important and influential and inspiring. So, this is how solidarity works over time and over space. And, you know, for here and for there, right? Word travels and it returns. For example, I want you to ask the internet about this as well. Feminism is a browser. It's a short film by Charlotte Eifler, and it actually has a lot of parallels to the work of Martina Nedam, who we will be talking with in just a moment. So the key protagonist, Rose, is certainly a recombinant. 
And this is very much a feminist production, but it's also dealing with generations of feminist work <clears throat> with art and technology. So, yeah, I think that is about my time. And yeah, I would like to thank you for your attention. And I would like to, again, thank, thank Lima for having me here. Uh, thanks to the whole team there. Thank you, thank you, uh, Seneca. Thank you, Jose. And thank you, the public. I think we're going to uh, move on over to my discussion with Martine Nedham about her current exhibition at Lima. And yeah, so thank you for having me. <laughs> thank you for joining. Join me with a glass. I forget the new Chinese expression that Seneca in, uh, informed me of, but I think there is one. So let's have a drink together while we're sharing this other space and this other moment of being together and stay healthy and stay home. Thank you. Welcome back and thank you so much, Diana, for your talk. Uh, I would now love to invite Martin to the screen. And um, yeah, Diana and Martin, please engage. And um, afterwards, there will be a hi, hi. Um, Afterwards, there will be a, um, a, the possibility for you, audience, to ask questions. I will be there to moderate them. You can uh, implement them by chat and we'll, I will read them out to um, Diana and Martine and we'll uh, happily answer your questions and hope we can engage in this online uh, talk together with you. But for now, I want to give the screen to Diana and Martine and um, enjoy. Thank you so much. So Martin, great to share space with you here. Um, yeah. Um, maybe you want to say hello to the public? Yes, uh, of course. Hi, everyone. It was, uh, well, great to follow your own, uh, your, uh, this very complex setup of uh, how uh, techno-feminism uh, has been uh, living on through generations, um, so I'm ready to hear your uh, questions. Okay, wonderful. I think <clears throat> one of the starting points is that it's very interesting to engage with you, who I have known virtually and in real life since many years, and but also at the same time, it's interesting to sort of question with whom I'm talking because so much of your work has revolved around developing different personas. And I must say, I'm really, I'm, like, there's Mouchette, like 1996 until if in infinity. And I think that's the sort of, infinity. yeah. And, yeah, and so, and I think, yeah, especially in, especially in this moment, um, it's interesting to look at how you've, like, work with the notion of recombinant, so recombinance, but also recombination, because we're in a really, I mean, this, this particular moment, the start of a new decade, the start of a new crisis, the start of what will become a different way of being in the world. And especially exactly this, um, this conversation is one example of how that world is networked and how, those, how this network infrastructure becomes a very fundamental part of people's lives in a way that <clears throat> is kind of unexpected due to the crisis, but also easily anticipated due to the trends in, like, so in society, economy, and technology. So 
Yeah. But here we are <laughs> in various locations sharing this space and sort of condensing time zones and recombining everything. So there's that. Yeah. Um, so yes, I would say every, every time I started creating a new character, I fell into another, a very different, um, a very different uh, uh, configuration of our network. So the funny thing is, well, I, I still uh, continue making Mouchette uh, alive and using configurations of network that was still present in two, that was already present in 2000 and do not take so much in account uh, like new social networks or, uh, and still uh, by doing Maja Edelstein Gomez, I really fall into a new configuration and have to make different decisions. The interesting thing is, for example, uh, Mouchette was a sort of virtual artist, while Maja Edelstein Gomez is an online curator. So it assumes that all artists are already online artists, so that she can, uh, whatever their um, their uh, art uh, form is, they're all at the same time online artists. So, uh, so now you need another type of, uh, another type of configuration to put all these online artists together. And that's where the, uh, the online curator comes in, the recombinant, the one that reconnects all these. Uh, so I could say that's how I would uh, specify the big difference from the online artist to the online curator. Now, it's also interesting because this is like, and it's kind, it's easy to forget this in this moment, but it also relates to trends in the art world where you have this sort of emergence of the curatorial role as a sort of new form of art making in itself. And that the artist is somehow then becomes a little bit, the role of the artist is very different and the role of the curator has changed a lot in the last 20 years. So since, or like, oh, more than that, but uh, particularly in the last, let's say 10, 15 years, the, the curator plays a different role. And so you have star curators, which you didn't have in the past as much, you know, and I, I don't want to say that you didn't have, you know, important curatorial figures in the art world, but the, the, the name power and the, yeah, the branding of curators has become different. So you're also engaging with this, basically this art world dynamic. Yeah, yeah, it borrows from a, a number of um, existing models. We, we got inspired by some of the star curators. For example, the double name that, that supposes a very mixed origin uh, relates to uh, also this... Uh, um, how our, our identities, through our names, are complex, our origin are complex, with different... Uh, and, and this is also how we curate art, by putting our identity forward, is already what attracts people and let them uh, tap into also this complexity and hybridity of their own... Uh, uh, of the identity of their art or the identity of their person. So yeah, we, we definitely use uh, 
specific model, well, models, famous models like Caroline Christophe Baryeyev, for example, you read a whole story in these mixtures of names. So, uh, yes, that's uh, also not only a mixture of name and personal identity, but a mixture of functions. Like you could say, uh, this one has uh, in her biography uh, work with uh, NGOs, for example. The fact that curating online art can be also giving attention to conditions, to conditioning people in different uh, spaces of the city. Uh, but also, if you look at the biography of uh, Maja Edelstein Gomez, she had a number of big disasters in her life. And then you realize that also curating online life, it could be inspired by curating yourself. Exactly, because these are sort of like it's the stories that you learn via social media or the stories in bio, like the stories that are in the official biographies or the stories that come through interviews. And here's, I think this is something where I find you've, you've jumped ahead in my questions because one of the things that is, it's, there are two really interesting aspects of having the, the biography and this backstory. One is that it of course challenges what is a fictional or um, non-fictional story and what we kind of, we can curate and control how we, like, as, as artists, act, activists, curators, what we put in public and what we don't, what we choose to share, what we don't share, right? And, and that's, that's what the social media has allowed us to do in terms of the representation. And here's something where I'm thinking of the German artist, um, Natasha Sadier Hagian who did this project at the um, Biennale, which is, you know, and she's got this long-term project of this bi um, biography exchange. And so the denial exactly of fulfilling the expectation, you know, in, in her case, possibly, you know, to get away from being exoticized or forced to take a cultured position as a contemporary artist or an academic position, where did you study, et cetera, et cetera. And, okay, so you're, like, that's this biography combines that this, the, the, the story of an artist, like what's getting sold to the public, in this case, the story of the curator as artist, plus locating that in time and in, in media-specific moments. Because that's this biography. The tragedies are not just her private tragedies. They're always linked to globally relevant moments. So can you speak about that? Because that's another way of locating it into something which is Amplified, which also has like a, it's kind of a collective memory, and that she exists within this shared space of collective memories. Yeah, well, because the memory of the world is now so um, at hand, it's easy to find uh, an event that existed, for example. Whereas uh, before the internet, you would have to have known someone who had this tragedy to say this is believable. Uh, so now, of course, you, at your disposal, you have the story of the world, which you can, which you can use as, a, uh, as background for a fiction. Like that's that's one of the elements. And uh, but I. Um, so then you you don't. That's how you. <coughs> 
That's how you describe your personality. That's how you curate yourself, by tapping into the history of the world and saying, look, this is me, this is what I look like. I look like this part of the story of the world put together. And that's your sort of self-curating, self-curating your identity to present yourself to the world. So that's an element. But I would like to add that this, you could say that the work is made of two parts, like, uh, although two parts are intertwined, the, the identity of the curator, but also the show itself, how all uh, material of uh, more than 250 artists has been brought together and streamed together uh, according to a, 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 a created interface. So, um, so how, how we also asked uh, artists to provide their works, sound, video, pictures, everything they, but also to provide uh, their text and to provide their photo, and we could stream that together. So using also their photo, their artist statement, biographies, as a part of the exhibition and uh, running them online together with their videos, with their, or with their um, uh, sound moment, all these being streamed by uh, the software that we have created, the visual interface. So uh, yeah, that's... Yeah, because that also, that's another, that's another um, aspect of the recombination, the recombinant curatorial practice, the curator as the recombinant. Am I correct? Yes, yes, yes. And I wanted to ask that because basically when when the exhibition was curated, the artists did not know that the, let's say, the artist did not know that the curator was a recombinant in a real sense. You mean the invited artist? No, it's more than as soon as you were taking part in the show, you were a recombinant yourself. You became one of the recombinants. Actually, yeah. Actually, I wanted to sort of uh, point out what this term refers to. It's a sort of scientific notion. Uh, recombinant refers to recombinant DNA when the code is being changed, when something is being added. So your nature is not so much hybrid, how do you call it, become hybrid, but that something in your code, just a little part of it, has made you an altogether different being. So um, that's what we, that notion we're tapping into, to ask people who uh, participate to become recombinant, that is maybe to sort of give up something of what they call their own identity, to be mixed with the identity of the others. Uh, so some faces will come up, some texts will come up, texts will be mixed together, and which uh, will form a sort of uh, uh, global image that streams and, and, and refers to that recombinance of the world itself. Yeah, and this, I think this goes into something which I find very interesting is how like you, you. This is also a feminist aesthetic. It's a, It's not just 
referring or a critique of hegemonic structures, including identity, it's actually engaging with that. So the recombinant, not just on the level of DNA, but let's call it like a recombinant social DNA, the DNA of society is that you're actually like messing with the work and the structure of the work, recoding it in, a, in this new form. And that works on several levels because it's no longer simply a criticism, it's a praxis. And that this is also a feminist praxis because of, and like this is what I would call a techno-feminist praxis, because it's informed by feminist theory and feminist art, but it's also, it's not just that it's talking about those things, it's actually, which are like basically how do you, how do you break down canon? How do you break down power structures? It's also uh, immaterially materializing those things in the recombinations. And that has its own aesthetic. So, and that's something which I find really interesting about the work is that it's actually, it's without explaining what it's doing <clears throat> and talking about, it's doing something that it's addressing. So, is yeah. Yeah, well, you've, uh, you've said it. We took a long time to design the, um, the, the interface. So the aesthetic of the interface also, how they are... Uh, for example, they are not uh, replicating a room, for example. It, on, the, on the contrary, in fact, they, they sort of modifying the access. So you could say in terms of uh, what has been used as uh, software and coding, it's a sort of uh, uh, garbling of a cube that suddenly brings oblique, uh, sideways a line. So everything, so at no point you can identify with a sort of a real space that would have horizontals, and, and, but um, still has line forces that constantly shift. So for example, this kind of aesthetic and how we also developed the superimpositions, they are layers, but you never distinguish which layer is in front and which layer is at the back. And uh, there are controls where you can put the uh, you, you where you can put the uh, you can click on a layer to appear or to disappear the layers of the text. So, but then you there's no explanation on the controls. So you will have to click blind. If you notice there are buttons, you will have to click blindly on these buttons and make things appear and disappear. And another important element is. Well, at the same time, everything is uh, mixed together. There's also a part of the interface where you can click individually on each artist and see their work composed uh, in, in an individual setting. So, so you don't have to choose between group show and individual show. It's all there. And, and also the way the, uh, the, the viewer recombines them when viewing Although no information is provided, you just have to observe and, and start looking and clicking. Um, also that, it makes also uh, the viewer as a participant of the recombinants. And here, this is something, because I find this extremely interesting, because again, it goes into, like, let's say, the role of the individual in relation to society, and, but in a, in a very, re, like in a, it's funny, I would call it a material sense, except that it's immaterial, technically, 
so you have this real possibility to get to engage with how uh, like subjectivity is produced without relying on just the individual. And so that because even if one chooses to look at an individual artist's work, it's also always going through this lens of relationships. So that work is always going to be read in relation to the other work, in relation to the show, somehow. Yes. So, and this is something where, again, I'm going back to like what makes, like this is somehow for me, what makes it a really interesting example of a techno-feminist praxis is that this is another way of understanding that it's not one story and that one story is always in relation to another story. And so that's like the, this work is like all of these works are then going, like going to be read in relation. And I find this very interesting because this is, you know, maybe in, in a, especially in this moment, I think it's interesting to reflect on how like all of these like basically isolated people whether they're in their family unit, their individual unit, their partnership unit, how we are communicating with each other right now is very much determined by where we are and how we are in the world. So that these societal relationships, like on the one hand, we're highly individuated right now. And then on the other hand, that is so remarkable exactly because it's in relation to this you know, crisis in society. And so, and these are like, it's a wonderful moment for people to reflect on who they are in relation to the world. So, and this work is some, is, and this work is allowing, allowing for that. So, and at the same time, no matter how uh, we, um, we experience our, our identities as very individual, we're all being curated by Zoom at the moment. Yeah. And I, I think, I mean, I think slowly we've got to come to a close. I don't, it seems like our time is a little bit running out. Although I'm, I'm super happy to continue the discussion. But you, there's a, a really nice um, uh, phrase that comes out of, out of um, actually now I forget who said it or which of, which of your recombinants has stated this, which is online, all data generates more data. Uh, and in a way, yeah. the, at the moment, it's also that data is becoming a sort of a type of coded reality. So all data generates more data and codes more realities. And yeah. that's something that I would, I think that that's also something that the work is a little bit predictive. I mean, it's, it's very suitable for this moment, weirdly, like, and for this particular exchange. So, and maybe you can speak to that because what does it mean that all data generates more data? This, I, I developed this idea of generative preservation for Mouchette, but as a general idea of what is preservation. Um, so that we, when talking about preserving the net, in fact, you're talking of something that constantly generates itself. And by stopping it, you don't say, if you preserve things by putting them on the shelf on the hard disk, or even um, by, by uh, stopping it, you don't uh, preserve it. You only preserve it by letting it generate and generate and generate more, more data, data, because this is the, 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 how the, uh, the world of data around us works. Every time I see your picture, I generate all kind of data around it. 
So yes, this is a preservation concept I developed. Like uh, to preserve something, you have to let it generate. The same way uh, to preserve a tree, you have to let it make another tree, or this kind of. Uh, but of course, it refers to a sort of uh, uh, scary notion or ever is expanding data that uh, controls us rather than we control it. So I'm, I'm getting a hint from Sanaka now because I see that we're just approaching half an hour and or a little under half an hour and um, said, is that right? Okay, so I would like to invite the public to basically check out the online exhibition because that's a lot, of, like this is something now people can have the time and space and certainly I think um, an opportunity to really like I think go through the work, experience it, and and think things through, generate more data, and maybe even generate um, other ways of seeing themselves in relation to them as themselves as a viewer, as an artist, as a curator, in relation to art institutions, and in relation to society. So that's something I, th I think it's a, it's a. I'm kind of curious what this moment will mean for that work because again this is another moment and the work you're weirdly in, in on time you know out of time in time on time would you like to say something martin as a closing word no i'm uh, curious to uh hear the reactions of your, our public and um, generate more data together. Um, thank you so much, Diana and Martine. That was really interesting um, to see you engage. And uh, I would like to open up this um, online floor to the audience right now. So um, Please ask your questions by chat and I will read them out to Diana and Martine and um, will happily answer your questions. So, um, yeah, thank, for now, thank you for attending and um, yeah, please ask your questions. And um, just to let you know, from now on, Lima will be online every Wednesday at eight. Uh, we'll have talks, uh, screenings and to see how this uh, current situation changes the way we uh, deal with digital technology. So hope to see you again next week, but for now, please ask your questions. Okay, thank you. Okay, uh, I see the first question has already appeared here on my chat. So, um, Diana and Martine, are you, are you ready for this? Um, I'm having a question here. What is the difference between creating fake identity as art uh, and as strategies for political manipulation, as we can observe now, the political right are masters of this kind of online manipulation. Online manipulation. For me, I always took, took the idea of uh, fiction, of, of uh, online characters as a form of fiction. Um, of course, uh, for example, literary fiction has its rules and we understand when we read a book that when it says I, it's not necessarily the author speaking. Um, so uh, I never saw the, the, the creation of uh, characters as online manipulation. 
but as a form of fiction that has its rules and uh, in, that doesn't necessarily have an aim to write to um, it doesn't aim to um, to influence people in a particular direction it aims to propose them a story in which they can identify so uh, I don't see the creation of online character as a form of manipulation. I see it as a form of fiction, as a form of creation. I have to, I'm, I'm going to say, I have to agree and say something that um, the type of online manipulation of data sets is not, I don't see how that relates to um, fictional characters. I mean, the fictional characters could also be right wing. One could, right? Like there's no there's no specific thing to having. I mean, there's fiction is fiction. How, how it parallels to the world is some, something else. But I think this other point of like how to, um, I think it's about using the potential anonymousness of some kind of cyberspace. Is I think that might be what the question is referring to. And I think, of course, if if the one is looking about what's in the hands of the right wing, what I think it's more important to look at what's. Like, possible and what's potential. And I think it's also, if you look at this Austrian politician that was brought down by this kind of um, artist action, it's not, I, I have to say there isn't, it's not like there couldn't be a political importance in, in creating different personas and uh, putting them into action, so. Oh, and, and a full disclosure, I have been drinking red beet juice I am switching to white wine, so just to so uh, just to full disclosure, right? So now that now that we're done with the hard part of the work, I am moving. I'm upgrading my drink. So, if I had been drinking red wine, I would be sitting like this by now. But I think I'm going to make it a little bit hard for you because the, the second question has arrived, and um, that will be: uh, Do you see the solution? for the future through digitalization. So, um, future solutions, Diana. Did you hear my question? I think so. <laughs> I, I do not think so. I think it's, I think, like, I don't have any solutions for the future. But I think that's going to come out of people getting together and thinking and figuring out things and being creative with that. It's, I mean, that's the point of art, right? To give you another another way to be in the world, another like this, another perspective from through which to see the world. Absolutely. Now, I I was thinking of it that um, in your in your in your talk, you talked about how different media not only enable ways of telling stories, but also how they um, influence, in a way, um, the so how they are being influenced by the social context in which they appear. And we're now in a time of like a drastically changing world. So isn't this the time for a more feminist internet, for instance? Like, isn't it like technology now um, at, this, at, the, at, the, at its changing point, at a paradigm shift that we can uh, collectively build something else? And are you in and can we in, be in with you and how should we do it? <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, like, I, I don't know, because I think what Martina's doing is already important. It's sort of showing a certain, 
like it's not the way forward, but it's another way of being. And that is forward. And yeah, feminist internet, like we have to re seriously rethink everything that we take for granted. And this is a wonderful moment to do it. And it's like, look, we've given capitalism a shot. We've given neoliberalism a shot. Let's try something else. And maybe not everything has to be about a profit bottom line. And maybe everything doesn't have to be about efficiency. Maybe, maybe it could just be what's about a little bit better for a bunch of people, a little bit more beautiful, you know, a little bit less awful. Like, why not? Like, we've tried all these other things and they're just making a disaster of everything. So... Yeah. But I wouldn't, I, I do have to say, I wouldn't count, I wouldn't count only on the internet or like digital things, because I think, I mean, look at like this condition that we're in right now, when we're, if we're due to lots of people scrambling to be online, we're very much forced to use extremely um, difficult propri proprietary tools. So even if it's accessible, Facebook, Google, all of these things, Zoom, all of these standard tools are highly like controversial in terms of the invasion of privacy, how they track users, how they track everyone who's coming here. So I think it's like, and this is, it's, it's like we all need to get busy and do stuff. The other tools are out there, but they're much less manageable. And that's something where I think if we're not going to be able to, to deal with things, if we're not able to ask the, like, yeah, it's, I think it's it, right now we have to do what we have to do. But if we're not thinking a little bit forward, I think we might just end up in a really awful trap. Like once the Corona th times are over, have we all abandoned everything that we had that we had in the hand already, like all forms of privacy? And that's, I think we really have to also keep that in mind. And we have plenty of time to think and do stuff in the next few weeks and months. So, Absolutely. Maybe that's what I, what I meant indeed. Uh, there's two more questions popping up on the chat. And um, one is slightly more related to what we previously said is, how do you see the production of data in an ecological concern. So I don't know who, who of you is up for answering that. It's the night of the big questions. <laughs> mm -hmm. In the form of entropy, I would say. That is, well, the sort of more likely scenario which I, that arises to my mind when I think of these ever-expanding data is that that idea of entropy, that things become so um, overdeveloped that they decay at the same time, that they change their nature. Um, so um, whether it's a better nature or a worse nature, we don't know, but that the way we, the way we envision it now is not just going to... Um, it's not just going to grow in quantity, it's going to grow and, and change in nature. So uh, whether for the better of, or worse, we have to be prepared to change. To um... Yeah. Yeah, Thank well, you. that's how yeah. I would think of it. Yeah, that's lovely. I'm going to speed up a little bit because I see more questions popping up. Um, let me see, there's the one... Uh, how does the work play with the notion of automated curation? Automated curation. Mm, curating by numbers, yeah. We had, Maja Edelstein Gomez uh, wrote this article, uh, Curated by Numbers, and then she got a lot of uh, questions about um, 
Actually, um, the curation was not so much automated. I would say here, um, we tap very much into the, um, the mechanical Turk, the little people present behind that make the decision. Uh, the, uh, the software is there to determine a number of things, but in the end, the real curator is the invisible person um, in, inside the machine. So I would say the more we talk about uh, algorithm being, being uh, uh, shaping our world, and the more we forget about these people, uh, in fact, making the ultimate decision. I would say uh, the fact that I'm here even talking uh, for Maja, uh, or the fact that um, the selection process uh, actually happened with people sitting at the table and looking at the, at the material being sent, all this um, is um, also witnesses for the fact that this... Um, Supposed automation is made to hide a uh, certain uh, labor. So uh, I would answer by that, like automation, uh, automation, automated curation means invisible labor. Nice. Okay, I move on to the next, and that's to who belongs the space in which the online exhibition takes place. You mean to the artist or to the uh, or to the curator or? Uh... I think there are multiple answers to that. There are multiple realities at stake. So yeah, but just pick one. <laughs> to the server, to the software, to the DNS, to the uh, yeah, just like everything that we do online. How much? Uh, of the data we uh, assemble belong to, yeah. Who does it belong to? Maybe we're just the curators of the data that comes through our, through our hands or eyes or, uh, or uh, desktops. But uh, we, uh, we just curate all this data, whereas we're more and more aware we are, it's not, it doesn't belong to us. I would say yes. Not us, not to us, unfortunately. Uh, and another one for you, and that's how does a fictional online character who is always regenerating relates to the passage of time? Ah, that's a big metaphysical question. Um, like, uh, um, for example, a web page is always regenerated by the server. It's the same, it's the same page, and then it has to be served to access your desktop. It has that thing of uh, an eternal life, or uh, like the life of a fly. Is it, I made a work about that, the life and the death of a fly. Is it, is it always the same fly that dies and lives again, or is it... Yes, is it uh, is the fly is a fly or any kind of being uh, a million years old? So this idea of uh, 
a web page being constantly regenerated and recreated. Um, that's how I think of the life online that is um, um, that there's not a continuous time. There's a sort of uh, eternally self-replicating -re time. Yeah, in a way, I think that's what also is made very explicitly in Mouchette, for instance, a work that is constantly evolving, but also constantly in loop, being Mouchette staying 13 um, forever there, but still it feels like she's growing in experience, so to say. But also constantly self-replicating -re as the same, like, uh, like that web page being served. And every time maybe just a little bit different, but still the, uh, this eternal self-replication. Okay, I see. Um, uh, yeah, I see more questions popping up, and I think um, it's going to be the last two questions that I'm going to ask you, and then we're going to round up this uh, online session. Um, reaching to the threshold of the present science fiction, considering that we are on the threshold of an absolute control working on a new era of speculations. Oh, and then it goes on. How does the curated portfolio is rather on the algorithmic governance? Governance. So, what is the future? of curation in the digital art institution resisting the algorithm by generating another machine. Do you want to take on that question? Uh, I, I, didn't, I didn't get how the institution, the, yeah. Maybe you can paraphrase, paraphrase it for us. I was uh, yeah I was about to that how it's more about like what you slightly touched upon is how it relates to the art institution. Um, so the, the most important is like, what's the future of curation in the digital art institution or just the institution uh, resisting the algorithm by generating another machine? So that's like an institute outside of the institute, I would say. The institution itself has its own algorithm. Uh, Diana was uh, referring to uh, this German artist, uh, Natasha Sader Gedidian. I don't know if I have her name. Uh, who borrows biography and she does it to, yeah, she does it also to um, um, disturb our normal al algorithm, how we judge art by looking at a biography rather than by looking at, or we need to, to uh, refer to a context when we're looking at art. We cannot, we cannot look at a piece of art without knowing whether the artist is male or female. Like it's, just impossible as soon as we change that. So we already have a lot of, uh, the institution pro produces a lot of algorithm uh, to, um, it's a sort of machine with its own algorithm and um, whatever is being produced by online art also taps into these algorithms, sometimes disturbing them, sometimes following them. But I would say, I would see a sort of unity between the already existing algorithm of the, uh, the institution, the machine that the institution is, into whatever is being done online. I don't see a sort of rupture, but more a sort of continuity, even if there's a sort of uh, blur in between or change or uh, shifts. But um, yeah, we all have our, or, uh, 
all this has its own algorithm by which it's sort of by which the machines are churning. Yeah. Thank you. I think um, that was it. I think we had all the questions from the chat, and I think um, we touched on quite some uh, some topics here tonight. Um, I had a, a request that came in just shortly uh, beeping on my phone, and someone said that. Um, like, I, I just have to do this. It was a special request. Okay, how many cyber feminists does it take to screw, to partition a hard drive? <laughs> okay. Uh. That's not funny! <laughs> and I was asked because, of course, it's April Fool's Day, and uh. someone mentioned to me that I couldn't let this go without, that we'd have to do some <laughs> sort of joke, so... And it's it's really hard because we there are no ju like there's no fake news we could give today that would be inappropriate because someone <laughs> so I leave you with this cyber feminist joke. So happy April Fools. <laughs> that's a that's a very nice way of ending it. So yeah, thank you so much, Diana. Thank you so much, Martine. And uh Lima Online will be back next week. I will talk to Florian Kramer, Heath Bunting, and Joan Heimskerk from Jody. So See you back here on the channel next um, week. And thank you so much for joining us online. Okay, see you soon. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks.